1: Hey, this is Andrew Thien, podcast editor and host of Beat Check with the Oregonian. Here's episode five of Public Plea, a five-part series from students, alums, and journalists at the University of Oregon. Check out our feed to see previous episodes or to listen to my interview with the journalists behind the project.
2: I feel like I needed time to help myself, knowing that if I was probably out there, I probably would have been
1: dead. Ricky Gators is now 46 months into his 10 year sentence and says that time inside is helping him pull his life together while he awaits a hearing and a judge's decision that could set him free. Having recently turned 21, Oregon's juvenile system can hold him until age 25 when any remaining time is served in adult corrections. The difference is stark. The juvenile system affords youth many more opportunities to prepare for a fresh start.
2: I would have never got what I got now. I would have never got my high school diploma. I would have never been in college.
1: But in a previous episode, Ricky's mom asked a valid question. But these are kids we're talking about.
0: You know what I mean? They make mistakes as kids and then they figure it out. But it's like, why couldn't they figure it out out here? Why couldn't there be like certain programs to where they can go to and figure it out. Why do they have to be incarcerated and give them, why do you have to give them such big numbers?
1: In this final episode, we look at prevention. What would it take to end the cycle of crime that leads to mass incarceration? We look at police policies, social services, and newer approaches to juvenile corrections. And later, a judge hands down a decision that will determine Ricky's future. I'm Ed Madison. And this is Public Plea. Our legal system aims to keep us safe, but is incarceration the answer? Public defense attorney Lisa Ludwig says no.
3: If anybody bothered to think it through, they would realize that how destructive instead of constructive it is to, to lock those people up. Um, uh, you know, Especially when they could be supervised in the community. And that's the question that nobody asked for 20 years after Measure 11 is, you know, is there some other way to do this? Is there another way to, you know, correct this person's behavior and keep the community safe? Um, They just were like, "Mm, well, you know, we have the nuclear option. Why not use the
1: nuclear option? The Oregon Youth Authority is widely acknowledged for its positive approach to corrections. OIE's director, Joe O'Leary, actually agrees with Ludwig. Incarceration is not the optimum choice for affected youth and society.
4: The first part is true. Most kids do best if they stay home. Kids who come to a youth correctional facility have a risk of uh, uh, deepening their involvement in the system. So if they're not the right kids, if they are low-risk kids, if they are kids with significant mental health issues, those kids, our data tends to show, get worse and, and are more likely to recidivate and are more, more likely to have negative outcomes.
1: Using a data-driven approach, O'Leary is better able to support his team in assessing appropriate placements.
4: The other piece of this is that we're able to help our local juvenile department partners prioritize and identify and kind of triage among their caseloads to help them identify you know, the kids that, oh, this is a kid who's really on a trajectory to go to uh, the, the youth correction system. And if we use our limited resources around this kid, as opposed to all these other 20 kids on our, on our caseload who probably are not gonna end up uh, uh, going deeper into the system, then that's money that is better spent.
3: The juvenile system has it right. Um, then it's like people think that at age 18 or 21 or 25 you just flip a switch and stop trying to rehabilitate people (laughs) and it's arbitrary (laughs) Um, so uh, I you know I do think that OIA is a you know a positive agency they do a lot of good work they they have the philosophy that they want to rehabilitate people I've had clients get their college degrees while they were in OIA I've seen them you know, do incredible things with, you know, just a little bit of scaffolding and encouragement. And well, a lot of scaffolding and encouragement, but um, yeah. And then to take those people who've come so far and done so well and dump them into a penitentiary setting, uh, you know, seems like, seems short-sighted.
4: In the um, eighties and nineties, the tough on crime sort of uh, theory that nothing worked as far as treatment uh, or rehabilitation, so you really just needed to punish, um, and this racially coded stuff. And that, in, in our work, created a culture that reinforced punishment and reinforced this idea that, oh, if you just made the right decision, um, then, you know, these consequences that are natural as a, result of your co- as a result of your behavior wouldn't come. And until you learn that, oh, well, I'm just going to keep reinforcing negatively. And um, the research uh, uh, since the time that that was really uh, uh, in vogue um, has completely undercut uh, any idea that that works. It actually doesn't work for purposes of public safety, and it doesn't work for purposes
1: of positive outcomes for kids. Multnomah County is Oregon's most populous, encompassing greater Portland. Dina Corso is Juvenile Services Director of the county's Department of Community Justice. She's worked in juvenile justice for 30 years.
5: I've known way too many young people that Really just end up doing time. They've been reformed. They're no longer a, a threat to the community. They did some impulsive, stupid thing when they were a teenager, but they're they're they don't pose an ongoing threat to the community, but they're still just doing time. And it's really expensive time, also. So it's a drain on the on the society as well, financially, um, as a burden on the young person and their families and Um, And you're taking them out of their normal trajectory, their normal uh, development for a significantly important period of their life uh, and, and not learning how to do those developmental milestones that you would do when you were 16, 17, 18 years old, 20 years old in the community.
6: Erica
1: Pruitt works with Corso as the director of the county's Department of Community Justice. Their agency works with juvenile court counselors and probation officers to provide more holistic supports for supervised youth and their families.
0: You know, sometimes people say things are black and white and they're gray. What I say, there's many hues. I think that the kids that come into our system have multiple stories, and you cannot make an assumption of the story is, that is theirs. I think it's also important to know that our, our youth are resilient, that um, our youth are um, you know, that they are still learning. And so when they come into the juvenile justice system, um, that they have an opportunity to learn new skills, that they have an opportunity to build those positive relationships and make those long-term relationships with community providers. Oftentimes I think about our our, uh, profession and I really feel like we build skills. We teach our youth and um, the families that we um, are responsible for, as well as our adults, how to navigate systems that they've been historically underrepresented in, especially in our black community. There are disparities within our criminal justice system. And in order to solve the problem, you have to name the problem. And once you name the problem, then you have to engage in the strategies, be curious, be vulnerable, be courageous, and progress and move. And um, there's no more time to wait. Um, I've been a part of this profession for 27 years. My mom, actually, um, was the first black woman police officer hired by the city of Portland. So if anyone understands some of the issues related to race and class, our family understands that. Um, our family is a Portland story um, from the shipyards um, all the way to the Vanport flood. So we understand the disparities that have plagued Oregon. We understand the foundation um, where Oregon was built and it was and, and, and now we have the opportunity to do better. but we have to be intentional and um, and if we are not going to name the problem, then we're not going to be able to solve it.
5: This goes back to Erica's point about it's so much further upstream. It's like the whole system failing our BIPOC youth. And there's also the willingness that Erica was talking about, willing to name it and to call it out and to talk about it. And every time I testify about any bill in the legislature, I bring up uh, racial disparity. Like that's gotta be part of every conversation about whatever the reform is that we're trying to get through, whether it's Senate Bill 1008, or it's juvenile fines and fees, or it's expunction laws. Like, you have to look at, if you know that black and brown kids are disproportionately referred to the system and then disproportionately impacted every decision point, and especially the deeper you go into the system, then everything that we do has to be looked at through that lens.
1: As the director of Oregon's Youth Development Division, Brian Detman works at the state level to develop and facilitate programs designed to prevent juveniles from entering the criminal justice system. He says societal investments are key to bringing about lasting change.
7: You have to make a long-term commitment to recruiting um, teacher-administrator workforce that reflects the students we're serving. I think that's an essential investment and commitment. There's new new approaches, new data, new information, and 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 I know that whether there's um, folks of color or folks who identify as white or folks who identify wherever, we all could use training and capacity building and and and, and new information um, about how how we can best reach and. And, and educate our young people. And so that's gotta be a long-term investment. The mentors, the, te- the tutors, the, the system navigators, um, all these folks who are in and out of school sometimes or working in summer programs or assisting you know, with, with outreach, those folks are a critical group that I think we need to make sure to not forget pay them well, (laughs) and and ensure that there's continuing opportunities for growth, development, and training.
1: Law enforcement reform is also a significant but controversial part of the puzzle. A strong public sentiment is that there's a disconnect between officers and community members. According to Portland Police Bureau data obtained by the Portland Mercury in a 2018 public records request, only 18% of officers live within the city they serve. Residency requirements were prevalent in many major cities during the 1970s and 80s, but whether they make a difference is still a subject of much debate. Police unions and advocacy groups have argued that such requirements inhibit their ability to attract a broader range of applicants. Plus, housing costs are often higher within city limits. Former Multnomah and Clackamas County District Attorney John Foote believes that some reforms are good, But others are problematic.
6: Policing underwent a large, not a revolution, but evolution in the 70s, 80s, and 90s to be much more proactive and be out in the community more, engage with the community where you find out about crime faster. Um, And I would guess that now, if I was a police officer, I would be careful about that. I mean, who's, who's going to accuse me of something?
1: Foot says law enforcement is unjustly under attack.
6: We're in the throes of a really raging campaign to delegitimize police and to delegitimize the criminal justice system. And it's not surprising that with all the money behind it, that it's having effects. Um, I don't think that's good for our society. I don't think it's factually accurate. Um, notwithstanding that there can't be abuses. After Freddie Gray, police stayed in their cars. They didn't risk going out and putting their hands on somebody on the street because they didn't know what the reaction would be. Crime exploded in Baltimore. I mean, really bad. So, and that, if you think about it from a police officer's point of view, the traditional cop just stays in their car and drives around and waits for somebody to call or perhaps they see something, perhaps they don't. You know, we pay police to arrest people. That means they have to put their hands on people. That means people don't want their hands, their hands on them, will fight. And it's very challenging for a police officer to do that. Um, and, you know, so th- that's a dynamic.
1: James Manning is one of Oregon's two black state-elected senators. He's put forward legislation that would bring more transparency and reforms to policing in Oregon. And he speaks from experience.
8: What I didn't want to, I didn't want to appear to happen is that someone would say that, well, you are, you're against law enforcement. That is not true. No way. I am a former police officer. I know. I want every, every law enforcement officer out there to be able to go to work, do their job, and go home safely to their family uh, just like anyone else, what I don't want, I don't want bad policing. I don't want police officers that are engaging in criminal activity. I don't want police officers who, under some preconceived notion that it's affiliated with some type of terrorist organization, past, current, or or future, to say that, well, I didn't look, I didn't see color. That is a wrong answer. That is a light bulb. And when we're hiring people. I want to make sure that we put down on our application, have you or are you ever been involved with an identifiable uh, uh, extremist group and the list is already established by the FBI, the ACLU and the Southern Law Poverty Center. And if they have their names go into a, a national database, never hire.
1: In terms of transparency, video recordings often aid the justice system and community members in making accurate sense of policing incidents. It's possible that police body cam footage would have made the facts surrounding Ricky Gator's arrest more evident. However, Portland, Oregon holds a rare distinction. KGWTV News in Portland reviewed records for 75 of the nation's largest municipal law enforcement agencies and uncovered that Portland is the only one that doesn't use police-worn body cams. Senator Manning previously served on Eugene, Oregon's police commission, where he was instrumental in implementing a successful body cam policy.
8: The body-worn cameras here in Eugene started as a bike patrol testing out, and before you know it, it acted exactly like I expected it would be. EPD was receiving a lot of complaints about police... uh, uh, misconduct. All of those complaints start to go downhill because now they have the actual footage of what goes on with their encounters and stuff. I think it was a good thing you ask them today and each time I talk to an officer they're like best things in sliced bread. You know it's a good thing to have because one is that it protects them and more importantly it protects the public because it's a sense of transparency that we have established.
1: John Foote believes that camera footage, especially citizen shot videos, can sometimes fail to accurately capture the facts of an incident.
6: Well, my experience is that they can sometimes be misleading. The, you mean the kind of with their cell phones or whatever? They tend to turn them on after something started, so you don't see how it started. Then the camera doesn't have peripheral vision. They can't see other than what's right on the camera. They can't see what might be going over here, over here. You see it all the time. And I I think more transparency is always good. I believed it my whole career. But I don't think this is some panacea
8: for what's going on. Now in Portland, I was really surprised. Junction City has uh, body-worn cameras. As a matter of fact, Junction City, uh, if an officer draws his, his or her weapon, the camera is automatically ap- activated. They've got that sophisticated type of technology and they're a small department. So I was baffled to find out that uh, uh, Portland police doesn't have that. Well, there's some things that I have no knowledge of, although I do hear rumors that uh, mem- some members of the city government uh, was opposed to body cameras. So, uh, but I'm working on a bill that's going to make it statewide mandatory uh, for body cameras. I think it's necessary, I think it's critical, and if we see what's going on that continues, all these horror stories that continue to reveal themselves, we have to make sure that transparency and accountability is uppermost thought in everybody's mind, especially when it comes to law enforcement. We give them uh, the authority that no one else has. They have the authority to take freedom and even, at times, if it comes to it, they take a life. So they have to be held to a higher standard than anyone else. So what would
1: it take from the criminal justice system,
8: legislators, and community stakeholders to
1: significantly change our current outcomes? Multnomah County's Dina Corso has an idea.
5: So, I mean, I always tell people I would be successful if my job didn't exist anymore right if we didn't have a juvenile justice system if we didn't need detention facilities if we didn't or secured places for young people to be right i mean because other places new york and san Francisco's doing it and uh, king county's doing it are getting rid of detention facilities like institutions and but you still sometimes have young people that need to be in a a place that keeps them from being able to hurt themselves and other people sometimes um, but they're, they're creating more like home-like settings in communities, in close to family. And so um, those smaller facilities obviously cost more money. You don't have economies of scale. But you can do that um, in a way that's much more developmentally appropriate, much more um, uh, trauma-informed, much more family-like, which is more normative for teenagers. Um, so I would, I would create a system like that. Uh, instead of one that kind of feels more, uh, I don't know, less, less of that.
1: Community advocate Kimberly Dixon says that adversities sometimes offer us opportunities to reconnect with a sense of humanity and what really matters.
9: My mother passed six months to the day after my son. And we, um, my brother is incarcerated in Washington, and we um, asked if he would be able to come to my mother's funeral. And I wound up speaking to Dan Pacholky, and I explained to Dan all the circumstances. Uh, this was a suddenly, wasn't planned. We didn't know she was sick, etc. Dan said, "Okay, I'll, I think I've heard about it. I'll look into it." Long story short, calls him back, and he's like, "You know." Um, I'm very sorry for your loss. I've read your brother's file. It's a no. And I was crushed. I was like, Dan, I'm going to need for you to take a minute here and see that my brother is a son. He's a grandson. He's an uncle. And I want you to know that I have people who are going to bring me casseroles and they're going to check on me. And if I need to, I could go to therapy. Um, my brother doesn't have that. And you know what? You all got him for life. I said. So if you could just see him as a human being, who's just lost his mother, for two seconds, and can you tell me how? How you would? How would you cope? What's going to be better for? The environment where he's at. Will it be somebody who's been able to process their grief or somebody who hasn't? And Dan said to me, I don't know what you do for a living, but you are probably very good at it. So cause I'm going to say yes. Now it's going to cost you. I said, I know we got to pay for transport. I know. And my brother is one of the few people who has ever left out of prison and got to come to his mother's service. And when we talk about what can we do, Dan Pacholke at the time, was the head of Washington State DOC. And the three people that accompanied my brother were extremely kind they unshackled my brother and they let him be a human being at his mother's service so when we wonder where does impact begin from dan down to whomever down to the folks who transported my brother because of course i double checked with him how was your ride back they stopped and ate They were kind and gracious to my brother. That gave me hope that there's still still humanity amongst us.
1: On a bright spring morning, nearly four years into his 10-year sentence, Ricky Gators irons a white shirt and gets assistance with adjusting his tie for a long-awaited day in court. in the middle.
2: And then the final thing, the final thing, and I'll be ready. My coat.
1: He's petitioned for post-conviction relief, arguing that his original guilty plea be withdrawn due to several missteps in the handling of his case.
2: I'm feeling good. Easily like, people feel nervous and stuff like that, but I'm not feeling nervous. I'm feeling confident. I feel like I've talked to God and had a good conversation with him and I left it up to him. It's like, I'm gonna let you handle this. You know, I just going to hopefully get the best results that's coming up today. Hopefully they tell me the best thing that I heard in my lifetime. <laughs> Hello. All right. Good, good. I'm doing good. How about yourself? Thank you, thank you. No, no, I'm uh I'm ready. <laughs> I'm ready. Yeah.
8: Okay, I'm gonna put mine on mute since the judges here. Okay. How do you understand second
5: look?
2: Second look is another opportunity and uh, for somebody to really like change their life and show that judge and show everybody that's supporting them and even the people that's kind of not supporting that. You know, they did everything that they was capable of doing. They. Uh, you know they doing an amazing job incarcerated and i feel like a second look is just like another shot for somebody to get out in a community and show show the rest of the world that they are capable of staying out of trouble and doing positive things that they're supposed to be doing
5: so since june 11th 2017 have you changed your life
2: i changed my life a lot i'm a caring person even though this is what happened to my life. I still don't look bad at anybody for it. It's just, I, I feel thankful that he kind of gave me the time at that time because it's a way for me to change my life and possibly get what I need to better my life, like a diploma and, and attend college and stuff like that.
1: After reviewing his case, a month later, the judge ruled against his petition for post-conviction relief. However, Ricky and others who were convicted as juveniles under Measure 11 may yet see a brighter day. On October 5, 2021, Oregon Governor Kate Brown announced her intention to review certain cases of individuals who did not benefit from 2019 legislation reforms that were not made retroactive. In a letter, Governor Brown stated, Many of these young individuals pursue their education, fully engage in treatment and other skill-based programs, and become leaders within their institution prior to or before ever transferring to the custody of adult corrections. These circumstances are extraordinary. Thanks for listening to Public Plea. This program was independently produced by alumni and current students at the University of Oregon School of Journalism and Communication in partnership with Oregon Public Broadcasting, The Oregonian, and Willamette Week. The views and opinions expressed by our interview subjects are their own and in no way reflect those of the University of Oregon, our partners, or their employees. For more information about this project, go to publicplea.net. I'm Ed Madison. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. And thanks to the team of journalists at the University of Oregon, that's students, alums, and faculty who helped contribute to that project. And thanks to them for allowing us to share it on this feed. We'll be back January 3rd with a regular episode of our podcast. Happy holidays and stay safe.